Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Eka Bumi. Eka Bumi is an award-winning poet, author, illustrator, yoga instructor, and arts educator with 18 years of international teaching experience. Eka Bumi's poetry, prose, and illustrations have been published widely, including illustrations in Sally Kempton's Awakening Shakti and his new Bhakti coloring book, which are both now available from Sounds True Press. He is also currently a member of the core faculty of livingsanskrit.com. So hello, Eka. Hello. So I'd like to start just how we always start, actually, on the Chitheads podcast, which is asking you about your story mm -hmm. and, uh, and how you've come to the work that you do in sacred art. Well, I am a storyteller and a professional poet. And so I'll try to keep this short, but I love stories. You can let me know if you want to know more, but I know we've got a lot to cover today. Um, I was a, a coach for uh, speech and debate, essentially what's called a poetry slam for performance poets on stage. And I was looking for different ways to help poets uh, relax before these huge international competitions. And so I was going around and taking different classes in what we might call somatic awareness or relaxation methods. And um, yoga happened to be one of those. And I found that there were techniques, especially in modern postural yoga that I thought were helpful. And I also became interested in the pranayama, the breathing exercises. The other issue that a lot of the poets I worked with faced was uh, what we might call like self-stereotyping, typecasting on stage. So um, stereotypical behavior, gestures, speech patterns as they did their poetry. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to help them relax away from these sort of uh, self, created identities, um, which again, I felt was something that uh, yogic methods and yoga in general addresses, like this idea of an attachment to a, a, a self-created identity. Um, so I really went into the asana yoga. I became a teacher for several years, and uh, that led me to the deeper practices of hatha yoga, including pranayama, and moved on to the meditation. And as I um, went deeper into the meditation, I started looking at more of the ritual practices, like working with the deities. And um, I was really fascinated with the deities because my own uh, strategy and competition focused a lot on archetypes, playing off different um, types of people, like pieces on a chessboard or cards in a deck of cards. And the wide pantheon of the Hindu tradition was really fascinating to me that way. So I went deeper into the deity practice and that just kept, it just kept going. Yeah. And what I found is that um, it's actually really problematic for those of us who are coming to the Dharma from the West to treat it as if uh, it's um, a body of knowledge to be exploited for profit and the deities treating them as if they're chess pieces to be utilized or um, psycho psychological archetypes um, that are created by our psychology and that serve us rather than us serving uh, a larger, um, we might say, cosmic principle or uh, an awareness of reality. And framing things as chess pieces and as archetypes, I think, is actually really problematic. Right. Um, I want to ask a question about that, actually, because I'm really glad you bring that up. And uh, even though I had reserved the, the political questions for later, I think we can just... <laughs> We can just weave it in the whole conversation. It'll be great. So, you know, about this art, uh, the archetype thing, I'm really, I, I, I love that you're saying this because it seems like that, that archetypal sort of interpretation is very, um, is very popular right now for the kind of spiritual but not religious right. uh, Westerners who don't want the, they, they don't want to look at the deities as too godlike, as too representative of their Judeo-Christian experience or too much like the gods that they think that they're rejecting. So they're right. turning them into this, you know, sort of Jungian archetypal um, representation that, um, that, that sort of allows them to um, avoid the whole kind of conversation about the divine and really right. what it is external to my own representations of it. So can you talk a little bit more about you know, obviously we, we both agree it's sort of a, a misrepresentation, but what would you say is sort of the source of that misrepresentation and, and why is it so problematic? 
Well, to really boil it down, I mean, before we go into the political component about what we might call, you know, frame as colonialism and appropriation or misappropriation, um, before we go into that, that whole ballpark of it, to talk about it on functional terms, the reason why it's problematic is really because when we treat deities as archetypes, as um, fictional characters in our narrative, right, as cultural um, myths, right, at that point we're turning the, them into objects and we're turning them, it, it really aggrandizes our personal ego rather than dissolves it into something larger. Yes. We're framing it as an object that we can control and utilize for our personal benefit. And therefore it's serving us yes. rather than using them as a um, leap, uh, as a fulcrum to move our awareness towards something larger than the personal ego and dissolving or merging um, into a broader, more cosmic dynamic. And really, even for the people who do believe in deities, there's always the understanding that anything we can give a name and a face to is really just a stepping stone towards the supreme, what we might call non-dual awareness, which is beyond names and forms. So properly understood, a deity moves your awareness away from your personal biases, uh, attachments, preferences, aversions, right? And moves you towards more cosmic consciousness. But when we treat them as archetypes and psychological um, tools to make our life more enjoyable, we're actually reversing the flow and moving that cosmic awareness towards um, aggrandizing our, and making our little individual self very precious, right? Yeah. And, and it's, it's adharma. It's actually the opposite. It's, it's a backwards motion it's a complete misunderstanding of the relationship with deities i think that's the that oh that is the best uh, explanation of that i think i've ever heard um so to to push that a little further you're winning aka uh to push that a little further, <laughs> to push that a little further so then of course we have we have the archetypal um, understanding on one side and then on the other hand in understanding the kind of you know that that trajectory outward to the supreme. There are still there's still a kind of uh, difference between those who would um, perceive that supreme as a sort of qualitative supreme, and then those who would perceive it as more as a personality. You know, I'm thinking of the the Vaishnavas who who see Krishna as more than just an energy. Krishna yeah. as an actual being. So what is what is the um, uh, you know, how do, how do we understand that relationship? And I know that there are different traditions that sort of see it kind of differently, but what are your thoughts on that relationship between the energetic quality and the personified quality? So first off, I, I do want to point out what you just brought up, which is that there's different ways of going about doing this. And I want to acknowledge that um, it is something that I, as a Westerner, kind of have the liberty to do. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when we interview a traditional stewards of a tradition or lineage holders, they're going to talk about their path, their way of doing things. And there's a Indian, we might say culturally Indian thing of framing the way that they do things as the way to do things. Mm -hmm. So I just want to acknowledge right now that there, there are multiple perspectives on this and there are multiple paths that have produced enlightened beings. So there's not a single correct answer to your question. I just want to like make sure. that point that it's really important. Yeah. So I'm, I have my opinion and I have the opinion of my teachers that I can convey, but that doesn't mean it's the only way. Sure. So the, the key thing is, um, what, I, what I'm understanding you're saying is like, is there a contradiction or a problem between approaching the deity as a person with whom you have a personal relationship as opposed to a, what uh, my Vedanta friends might say, a impersonal, supreme, genderless, a cosmic a principle that yeah. is beyond names and forms. And is there a contradiction there? What I would say is only for philosophers. Um, <laughs> we see that people that approach uh, an enlightened deity, and I think that's a really key thing to um, emphasize. If you approach an enlightened deity, just as if you were, say, best friends or married to or lover uh, with an enlightened human, that enlightened being will then direct you towards that supreme realization as an act of generosity 
-hmm. right? Um, and that is a path towards full non-dual realization. And you're just utilizing that name and face as sort of a locus for your brain, your flesh body to focus on, right? Mm -hmm. um, most people, and this says, it's said in the Shastras as well, most people find it difficult, if not impossible, to have a deeply meaningful and passionate relationship, like a full body, mind, consciousness engagement with an abstract cosmic principle. It's just very difficult. Right. It's, it is possible, but it's very difficult. Um, so most of the scriptures I've read, most of the teachers I've talked to have said that if you're going to go the route of working with deities, go with the name in the face, build a personality. The key thing is choose an enlightened Mahadeva. Choose a deity that has a history of producing enlightened devotees, mm. right? And then the, there, there's a guarantee, if not in this lifetime, but in future lifetimes, that you'll get the full package. You'll get the full awareness, right? Mm -hmm. But trying to go for the abstract cosmic thing, thinking it's superior, right? And, and going for it because of a kind of a attachment, like, I'm going to go for the highest teaching first. You know, it's again, this sort of ego thing, right? Yeah. And if you're not getting any results, right? If, if your teacher doesn't practice that, right? Um, and if you're aggravating your ego and alienating everyone around you by acting super self-righteous, right? Um, then maybe it's not working. Maybe that's not the right path. Mm. So, so I have a question, sorry, follow up to what you just said, because I know some of the people listening are going to want to know, after you were just mentioning enlightened devas and the ones that have produced enlightened uh, subjects, who are those devas? You know, do you have a short list of those? Because you know there's going to be people wondering. <laughs> yeah, I know. I asked my teacher the same thing. It's a really fun thing to do. Um, I guess the key thing is, uh, before I like make a laundry list, which would be really easy, I mean, I could just say like the classic Mahadevas of the Hindu tradition, we look at the ones with a third eye, mm. is a really good symbol that they've seen unity. So I, I'm biased towards the Shaiva tradition, and you see the deities of the Shaiva tradition all have a third eye. But there's no question that worshippers of Vishnu and Lakshmi of Krishna and Radha have also produced what we might consider to be highly realized or enlightened or liberated beings. You can look at the history of that lineage, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the key thing to remember is that um, the deities that we see widely worshipped have a proven track record of helping people in success. Um, people will have visionary experiences and say, oh, I saw God. Um, but there are a lot of different gods out there. Um, there are a lot of different spirits out there, and some of them appear divine. Um, even the Christians talk about how beautiful Lucifer is. And I think we need to be aware of falling in love with something that's very spectacular and magical and beautiful without doing a little bit of our background search. I mean, if you're dating somebody, would you just want to go home with somebody who's you don't know their name, you don't know their friends, you don't know where they're from, you don't even speak their language. You just take that person home. And this is the same thing I say to folks when they go to India and just buy a statue and bring it home and put it in their bedroom. I'm like, yeah. would you just pick up somebody off of the street, take them home with you? You know, <laughs> wouldn't you at least like do a quick Google search? I mean, yeah. something, little background information would be helpful, right? And I mm -hmm. think it's the same thing with deities. Um, do a little research find out who their friends are, find out what people think about them, uh, find out if they've had a, you know, if they're abusive, horrific human being, or if they're a really benevolent, sweet, wise human being that's helped a lot of people. Treat, it, treat the, the deity, if you're going to personify a deity, treat it with the same amount of respect and caution you would a person, at mm -hmm. least, at the very least. Yeah. So, Eka, how would you define deity? And is the definition of deity different than the definition of God from your perspective? Um, I don't want to get trapped in uh, semantics and language and definitions. Uh, we could sure. sit all day doing that. And I, I find that boring. I'm sure your listeners <laughs> are kind of even more boring than me. I can nerd out on it. Right? So, a devata. Um, is a specific, uh, what we might call a devata or a sura, as opposed mm -hmm. to an asura, right? This is a specific class of beings. They're non-corporeal, although some of them apparently can manifest physical bodies. Um, they have certain characteristics, um, and there are many different classes of beings in this universe, all the way from 
animals to humans? And is the, the border between a human and an animal really distinct? Like, is there like a line, a cosmic line that says this is an animal and this is a human? It's the same thing as we start talking about like nature spirits and elementals and uh, celestial dancers and yoginis and dakinis. And um, we start moving up to devatas. There's also asuras. There's the ghost realm. There's a classic teaching. The Buddhists are really good at creating lists. And so I'd encourage your readers, if they want to know more about the different kinds of beings out there, to look up a classic teaching about the six realms. It's a really nice, easy, simple uh, way of categorizing the vast spectrum of beings that the um, Hindu tantric tradition acknowledges as real. Yeah. These kind of sit at the top, you might say, of that heap as the biggest, most expansive, most powerful beings. But they also have very characteristic limitations. And I really, I hope that you and your readers or your listeners can really hear this, that like uh, we humans have the greatest amount of freedom. So the deities have a certain kind of expansive cosmic power, but they're kind of trapped by their cosmic role. That's how they get that power. So like a cog in this big machine. Whereas we humans really have the, the ability to act like any being from any realm. We could act ghost-like. We could act like an animal. We could act like a titan of industry. And we can even act very godlike. Um, we have tremendous freedom. And it's even said that there's a long line of gods and goddesses waiting to take a human birth for the opportunity to be free and to practice the Dharma. So it's easy to describe a deity as being like, uh, in a hierarchical sense, as being like the top of the heap. But we need to understand that, and this is the beauty of that Six Realms teaching, that they're just part of a spectrum of reality of which the true cosmic awareness, the non-dual beingness that is the center of the universe and the center of our own heart sits at the center and expresses all of them, including us. And really, if we are practicing yoga, we should not really, in my opinion, think of a deity as being superior to a human mm-hmm. or um, superior to an animal or an animal being superior. You start doing all these hierarchical things and you're yeah. back to attachments and preferences and judgments again. So deities are really just a class of beings that have a role in the universe just like we do. Mm. So I, I really appreciate that that observation about hierarchy and, and not seeing deities as superior. But then I guess the question that arises out of that observation is then, well, why do we devote ourselves to them? If they are, in a sense, more kind of trapped than we are, why aren't we just worshiping our own freedom? Well, uh, we need to remember that we're talking about, um, again, we're mixing up individual experiences and individual relationships with broad categories and generalized definitions. Mm -hmm. So um, I would treat the president of the United States, whether I like him or not, with a great deal more respect than I would some kid I meet on the street. I would just treat that person differently because of the role they're playing, right? So when we approach a deity to be a guide and a protector, right? And we know that this is a Mahadeva, a great deity, that has enlightened many beings. In other words, they have great wisdom and great power, great awareness, great capacity to help. We would treat that person different than a minor devata of the local hill down the street. Because, I mean, they say that there's a deity of any large geographic landscape feature, rivers and springs. Those are minor devatas. And really, I mean, any being is worthy of our respect, right? But we need to discern the difference between a great cosmic Mahadeva like Vishnu and the goddess of the local creek. Yeah. Does that make sense? So I would not recommend treating the goddess of the local creek with the same deference and surrender as the deity with whom we've taken an initiated uh, relationship to through our lineage, right? That is teaching us how to be enlightened. It's a different relationship. And just as we treat different people differently, we treat different deities differently. And that requires discernment. That's why study and research is required. Yeah, amazing. So, um, Eka, in your website, uh, which I enjoyed uh, looking over, there's an article that you wrote on, uh, in response to a question about 
well, isn't, you know, sacred art just whatever I perceive to be sacred or, or something sort of yeah. like this. And you, you really gave a really beautiful answer. And I just wanted to kind of um, maybe hash out a couple of, you know, components of that response as a way of really kind of getting in touch with what is sacred art. Um, because, you know, uh, one of the things that at least uh, I've observed, and I'm sure you have as well, is that our culture is in a sense, you know, and when I speak of our culture, I'm speaking of American culture, um, and perhaps true of many other modern industrialized countries, that they've lost a sense of the sacred generally. And then they've also, if it ever did exist in the first place, um, in their own culture have lost um, the role or the functioning of sacred art. So I think there are people who just don't even understand the utility of it. And obviously you're already starting, we've already been talking about that to, um, in a various degrees, but, but you know, what makes um, the, the art that we find in sacred art serve the purpose of our practice better than, you know, Van Gogh's Starry Night? Um, what you're asking me is essentially like, why um, do we find a um, avocado more nutritious than a brick? Um, it's a discernment question. It really is. Like, um, sacred art serves a different function and it, it's made in a different way. It has a different composition. Um, it's built differently. So if I'm looking up some pornographic picture of a demon chick with a leather jacket on the cover of an album, I can perceive that as sacred. I can utilize that if I have the digestive capacity, you could see God in everything. And they say that some yogis can eat bricks, they can eat poison, you know? Um, and if you don't have that digestive capacity, I think this is important for us to be self-aware and be humble. If you don't have that ability to digest a brick, then maybe you need to go out and seek out something that is easier to digest and is designed to be eaten and be nutritious. Mm. And so it's the same thing with the art. You can theoretically, anything can be sacred, but let's get humble and, and, and actually honor our digestive capacity and utilize art that is designed to nourish our spiritual practice and is easy to digest. Mm. So, um, I just want to acknowledge that yes, in a non-dual sense, we can see anything is sacred, but we do not at any point in our practice abandon our discernment. And until we have that capacity to digest any experience, any food, right? Then discernment is required. And so sacred art is designed to nourish our spiritual nature. It's designed to be easy to digest. And rock and roll art is designed for a different purpose. It's designed to um, stimulate our senses and move our awareness in a different direction. It serves its own purpose and it's beautiful in its own way. And we can acknowledge that a brick works really well in a fence and it doesn't work so well in our stomach. It's the same thing with sacred art. We can acknowledge that rock and roll art works really well at a rock concert for a rock and roll fan and not so good for somebody on the path of realization utilizing an icon for spiritual practice. It's inappropriate, it's incompatible. Mm. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of the content from your books, which uh, you know, we mentioned in the, in, the, um, in, uh, in the introduction or in the bio that I read that you've recently published the Bhakti Coloring Book, and then that was a sort of um, sequel to the Shakti Coloring Book. Um, and in, in the Shakti Coloring Book, especially there's, but I think also in both actually, there's, there's both the personified and the yantras. And, um, and so I wanted to talk about the difference between these two and why someone might um, elect to use a yantra versus a, uh, a personified deity. So this seems to be a theme in our discussion already, and I think it even relates to like how you choose sacred art and how do you even discern what sacred art to use. Yeah. Um, I would like to give a very simple model um, of what we might call in the Buddhist tradition, the three bodies of the Buddha. Um, uh, and this relates to three levels of reality and three levels of subtlety. So they call, um, they talk about the Nirmanakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Dharmakaya. 
Um, the nirmanakaya is basically the suffering body, the meat body the, in the world that we're in. Um, the sambhogakaya is the bliss body, the divine body, the subtle body, the energetic light body. And the dharmakaya is the supreme. And that's like basically the whole universe, the, the body of the dharma itself. In the Hindu tradition, we might call this stula, sukshma, and para, or the gross, the subtle, and the sublime. So the gross would be, if you're going to use an icon of something that belongs to the gross level, the, the physical level, that would be a picture of a human teacher, a human saint. And that would be an icon of the supreme for you, if that's your entry point, if that's what you can relate to. For those people who've, um, who are not so attached to the human form, we have a tendency to think that humans are the only intelligent thing in the universe. And so the only way we can describe intelligence and consciousness to an icon is if it's shaped like a human. But as we subtleize our awareness, we can move to the form of a deity. The forms of deities are abstracted. They don't look quite so human anymore. They have slightly larger ears, wider shoulders. They look youthful. They have no body hair, no wrinkles, no bones, because they're made out of light. And so uh, as we move towards more abstracted figures of deities, they um, look less and less human because we're trying to move our awareness away from our physical uh, body-oriented human identity and moving us towards cosmic awareness and a, an identification with cosmic principles. And so visually, we move from a, a human form that looks anatomically with muscles and sinews and, and wrinkles and hair, moving us towards geometry because geometry is a universal form. We're moving our awareness from the gross to the subtle to the sublime. So a triangle on earth represents three, but a triangle anywhere else in this manifest universe, in the Andromeda galaxy, it's still gonna be three. Any alien in any part of this universe is gonna understand what a triangle is. So by moving from the human form towards these very simple geometric forms, it's a visual metaphor for moving our consciousness from the gross to the subtle, to the sublime. And the way that we do that in sacred art is moving from what we might call camera-like realism towards abstraction as the deities get more and more abstract. And then we start seeing the deities portrayed in what we might call a grid form. You see that a lot in Buddhist traditions where the deities are actually, their figures look very strange, actually, not so human anymore because they're built on a grid. They're actually a, a kind of hidden yantra. There's a human mm. figure built on top of a yantra. A yantra meaning a, an enlightenment device, one of these sacred mystic diagrams made of sacred geometry. But eventually, once we stop being attached to our humanness as a basis of awareness, and we can start um, having <clears throat> a loving and passionate, uh, profound relationship with consciousness itself, and understand that it's not trapped in a human skull, right? Then we can start identifying with the deity as the geometric form, as a yantra, as a mystic diagram. We can start having an experience of uh, darshan, of mutual seeing, seeing and being seen by the deity in their non-human body of light form. And we start moving towards the supreme, which is represented in the yantra or mandala, by the dot at the center, right? Mm. With complete mm. unity. So the sacred art utilizes a beautiful visual metaphor going from camera-like photorealism through abstraction towards the geometric and from the geometric towards the supreme, which is beyond form. And this is the same way that we work with mythology and going to chanting and then going to mantras then going to bijas, and then going to just what we might say awarenesses of like color or sensation, and then to complete non-dual meditation where you're not chanting anything, you're not looking at anything in particular, you're not uh, holding on to an object. You know, there's meditation with object and meditation without object. So if you're sitting there in meditation staring at a mandala, that's meditation with an object. If you're sitting there in meditation with your eyes closed, but you're chanting a mantra, it's still an object. Even awareness of the breath, the breath is still an object. But at the point where you just sit and meditate without attachment to anything, you're just abiding in non-dual awareness. 
you've moved to the supreme. Mm. So just as in regular asana practice, you're starting with your physical body and you move to the breath, it's consistent through all, all the different branches of the yogic tradition. You start with the gross, you move to the subtle, and hopefully you can then graduate eventually to the supreme. And that always requires a um, release of our attachment to our human identity. I hope so that's is, yeah, that's very helpful. So traditionally then is a yantra, um, is it a part of a sequence of sadhana? Like it's not just that you would just have a yantra practice, but it would be part of a larger sadhana, or is this also something that can kind of vary? And what does a, a, a traditional yantra sadhana look like? Is it simply about darsha and I sort of gaze upon the yantra and it's it's that sort of a, or is there more of a kind of, um, uh, an aspect of it that is more related to the various um, uh, geometrical shapes that the, uh, comprise the yantra. Again, I really want to make sure that your uh, listeners know what a yantra is. Mm -hmm. So uh, most people know what a mandala is. Which yeah, is what's the, the difference between those? So mandala means circle, yantra means device. Um, some mandalas are uh, yantras, um, some yantras are mandalas, and in fact, I would say all mandalas are yantras, but not all yantras are mandalas. A mandala means circle and usually is a picture of the whole universe. It's usually a group of beings, right? Whereas a yantra is designed to focus on one specific function or being, and it may or may not be related to a deity. Whereas a mandala, in a classic sense, is related to the whole universe, and a deity or a supreme being is always implied at its center. So most deity yantras are also mandalas. So to really boil this down, yantra is a spiritual device. It's like a hex, it's like a little diagram and it serves a very specific function. It's a device. A mandala is a circle. Mandala literally means circle and that is a representation of the entire universe, okay? They both utilize geometry and they both generally are oriented towards deities. So they, they have a lot in common. There's a lot of overlap. It's kind of like saying all rectangles are, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a completely parallel comparison. Okay. So um, Yantra Sadhana, the reason why in my coloring book, which is really meant for the general public and even kids, why did I put a Yantra next to every deity? Um, I really wanted to give people the opportunity to have that experience directly with the yantra and to receive the darshan, the, the transmission power of the deity through the yantra to allow that possibility. It's kind of like the famous Vigyana Bhairava starts with the highest teaching first and then moves, it starts at the supreme and then moves to the subtle and then ends with the gross. Because mm -hmm. there's this idea that perhaps all you needed was that one last little push and, and you can be enlightened and so they don't wanna waste your time. And so I was hoping that by giving people the subtle image of the deity, the subtle representation, that maybe they could have that experience right away, right? And rather than forcing them to go through the sequential process. Yeah. So traditional yantra sadhana um, varies from lineage to lineage. And actually the utilization of yantras, because they're considered powerful, tends to be secret. So um, it's difficult to find good, reliable information on that. There's only a few books out there, really. So it does vary. It does vary from teacher to teacher, and different teachers I've had have treated them differently and uh, utilized them in relation to me and my practice differently. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, however, it's kind of similar to the way I was describing the art. You would start with the mythology. <laughs> Excuse me, you'd start with the mythology you would start with serving a deity or serving humanity, sort of these gross outer um, practices. You would um, engage in personal discipline and discipline your senses and discipline your desires, right? Then you would go into more internal practices like meditation, right? And then eventually you would go towards the supreme, which is not attached to any specific practice anymore. So the same thing in the art you would actually start with the outer forms of the art before you reach the, the yantras. The yantras are revealed to initiates. They're generally not revealed to the general public. You don't see yantra worship in most temples. There's one notable exception, which is the Shiva Linga. The Shiva Linga is an extremely abstracted form of a deity. 
it can be considered in and of itself a kind of yantra, a device, a, a highly abstracted form of the deity in geometric form. The Vaishnavas have their own version, which is called a, a shaligram. And in fact, Shaivas and Vaishnavas and Shaktas all utilize yantras, but in most of those lineages, they're very secret and they're not available to the public. And so they don't talk about the practice much either. Normally, you don't see the yantra and you aren't instructed in how to use it until you've been initiated by a guru in a private ritual and then the yantra is revealed to you, boom, in the hopes that maybe you just get it right then. And if not, then either you utilize the yantra as a sort of a substrate, as a foundation for a ritual practice like puja, where you're worshiping it, throwing flowers at it, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's put on the wall and you meditate on it as a focal point for your meditation, um, uh, Trataka style meditation. And you're allowing the colors and the shapes uh, to feel you, fill your entire field of vision. And it's repatterning your energy body through the sense of sight, right? So there's different ways to utilize yantras, just as there's different ways of utilizing a figurative form of a deity, right? Just as there's different ways of utilizing your body. Um, generally speaking, though, the, the yantra is a, made in a meditative way and used in meditation as a focal point for your awareness. And the pattern of the yantra is designed to repattern your own subtle body. Mm, wow. That's a really great uh, uh, explanation. Thanks. So, <laughs> well, so, I hope I'm not leaving people behind. I know that um, sometimes I, I even get complaints in classes that I teach that that we move very fast to these kinds of things, and people are like, "Whoa, you know, what was what was that word you're using? Yantra, mandala, oh, square, rectangle." I I just don't want to jump so fast that your listeners are feeling lost right now. I want to go back to that model that in all these different systems, we generally start with the gross. And we move our awareness to the subtle with the hopes that we can make that leap from the subtle to the sublime. Right. Well, I think the benefit of this podcast is that even if, you know, we're moving quickly through things, they can always go back and listen again and again. So if there's something that gets lost in, in the first uh, listen, I'm sure they can, and can hear it on the second or third. So I want to talk a little bit now about the work that you're doing uh, more recently, which is on altars. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some beautiful um, representations or some beautiful artwork that you've created on your Instagram feed, um, which everyone should follow if they haven't uh, started already, um, which is what? It's Ekabumi. Is, it's Ekabumi Elik, isn't it right? You're, yeah, um, yeah. I think yeah. it's pretty simple. E-K-A-B-H-U-M-I. If you look that up, you're going to find me. You're going to find I it. Think there's yeah. many of me around. Right. <laughs> So what has inspired this work on the altar? I mean, obviously, it's very related to devotional practice. We're talking about deities. Therefore, deity sort of implies something, you know, on which that deity stands. So, um, you know, what are the, what's the purpose of an altar? And then what are the features of the altar? Okay, so the purpose of an altar is to give a focal point for your awareness. Um, it's kind of like... Um, Sitting and meditating is hard for most people, but if you have something really beautiful and fascinating to look at, you can sit there for a long time. It's like I had one uh, sacred art teacher who said, I'm terrible at meditation, I can't meditate, my mind is way too busy, but I can sit down and start painting and then all of a sudden four hours have gone by and I'm just sitting there staring at the deity, chanting the deity's name, and I've meditated. So an altar is a physical focal point for your meditation practice. Um, if you believe in subtle power and subtle energy and different realms and all of that other stuff, you can think of it as a connection point, right? Where your human body and consciousness meets the deity. And that's why uh, an altar can be called a pitta or a seat. Temples are often called pitas. You may have heard of Shakti pitas. Pitta literally means seat. So you're establishing a divine energy at a specific location in your home so you can go and have a conversation, just like a, an old-fashioned uh, payphone, right? Go and talk to the deity for a little bit every day, and your awareness is focused because it's very beautiful. And that's why deities are meant to look beautiful and even sexy, because it captures our attention, and it holds it, right? It's, it's a useful device. Um, but an altar and even some temples can also be called Tirtas, which means a ford or crossing over place. 
And again, people see, seem to be really fascinated with this idea of um, a portal into another dimension, right? In this whole psychedelic experience. And it's true that an altar can be used as a theurta, but this is a more advanced and dangerous practice for people who want to have out-of-body experiences. And I don't think that's really appropriate for most beginners. So for me, as an artist, I made the art for people, right? I teach people how to make the art, and then they want to know what to do with it. So most of these icons, including the yantras, end up on altars as a safe place for putting and establishing a seat for the divinity you've invoked into your home. So the altar acts as a, um, for lack of a better term, a pedestal right? Altar to raise up, altar, right? You're, you're elevating something you consider to be very important as a sort of visual metaphor for its importance in your life. You're putting it in an elevated position at a central place in your home, and you're keeping that space sacred so that after you do all of your daily life stuff, distracted, busy, you can go over and you have this one little slice of calm cosmic consciousness that you can come and drink from like a well. Right? It's a seat of divinity in the home. And the reason why I got into teaching about altars was just people wanted to know like, okay, now I've built an icon, I've made a painting, I've created a yantra, where do I put it? And now that I've put it on an altar, like, is this correct? Am I doing this right? Is it okay for me to have Fred Flintstone on my altar? Is it okay for me to have the, the family dog on my deity altar? I mean, these are real questions that people ask. Is it okay for me to put this uh, one mountain that I visited that inspired me on my deity altar? And these questions come up. And most of my teaching for altar practice is really arisen because of questions. I didn't like think, oh, this is a great way to make money. Or this is a way that I can parlay my um, art skills into uh, a career. It was really because people sincerely asked me questions and I wrote a one page little summary of like an altar. Um, I modified things that different teachers have given me. And that is now slowly becoming a book. It's over 50 pages long now. Um, and again, with, as you know, almost anything in the Hindu Dharma tradition, like you, it's just a rabbit hole. You can just keep going, going, going. And the complexity can just keep unfolding, unfolding, unfolding. The key thing what I would say for people who are listening if they're interested in altars is number one, please come and visit livingsanskrit.com or come and take one of my classes um, and you can learn more about them. But um, really, I would say, try to keep it simple. Like you can have your ancestor altar, you can have your family dog sentimental objects altar where you're worshiping things that meant a lot to you during your life, your ego altar. But your deity altar for realization, if I could boil it all down, is just keep it simple. Just keep it really simple. Put the deity on there, make it, keep it clean, maybe offer um, a light, like a candle, incense, water, flowers. Like we could go into a lot more complexity, but I think most of us intuitively have an idea what an altar is. And the problem is that we tend to, we almost always start keeping lots of things on it, getting sentimental. And so I'd really say it's like enlightenment, they say, full realization is actually a state of incredible simplicity. And so I think it would also make sense, at least at first, I've seen some very complex altars. I have a pretty complicated one myself. But if you're really serious about using an altar for your spiritual practice, set up your realization altar as a separate spot to focus on realization and just keep it really simple. Hmm. So then what are, you know, in, in some of the images that I've seen on your Instagram, um, there's separate sort of features that you're kind of like, this is the place for this particular piece. This is the place for this particular piece. So, um, or Murti. So if, in, if we could just say, obviously there are different variations, but if we could, um, um, say, uh, you know, the, a simple altar, what would that altar generally include? What would be the features of it? Well, first off, I want to say thank you. Um, I really, really appreciate how much research you've done to prepare for this interview and um, how remarkable I feel that is. And thank you for your, your questions. Of course. Um, so uh, without going into a whole like altar tutorial, 
<laughs> I would say that if you're going to do a very, very simple deity altar, um, I would recommend that it be on um, wood or stone. Try and use like natural substances rather than plastic. Um, generally speaking, on that surface, there would be two steps minimum. So there would be sort of an earthly level, and that's where you put your offerings, okay? And then there would be like just even you could use a book or anything just to create a little step, right? Something that elevates a little bit. And then you put the deity on that higher level representing a celestial level. You can do altars with many more tiers and lots more symbolism. And I'm just trying to keep it simple for your listeners. So try and find a nice, simple surface, have two steps, a basic, you know, what we may call the shelf, and then another step to put the deity on. Cover that in a cloth. Ideally, that would be silk or linen or wool, right? Those uh, organic substances, silk is considered to remain pure. If you have to use cotton, that's fine. You just have to wash it regularly because cotton absorbs stuff. So ideally, you would have two steps, right? Uh, an earthly level, a celestial level, covered in a silk cloth. Put an icon of the deity you're working with on the top level. I don't recommend putting a sentimental object like your favorite mountain, if you especially haven't done your research. I'll give you an example. I taught a class and somebody um, followed all my directions. And I, you know, I gave these uh, directions about choosing an icon of the supreme and putting that on the top shelf. And he put a picture of this mountain. And I asked him, why did you put a particular mountain? It should be like a abstracted form. It was a photograph. And he said, oh, well, I had an experience of non-duality on this mountain. I said, well, it's very, it's very um, tricky to put photographs of real world things as a symbol of the entire universe. And so I did the research. I said, well, what mountain was it? And I did the research and it's this, uh, I forget the name of the mountain. It's a specific Himalayan mountain. And in fact, the mountain is supposed the home of the abominable snowman. And the, the locals don't worship that mountain. They placate it out of fear because it considers it, there's so many avalanches, it's considered to be a man-eater. They, they consider the, the deity of that mountain to be an asura, a demon. So oh, no. you put a demon on the top shelf of your altar, right? <laughs> you, you had an experience that you uh, felt was non-dual, but when we actually look at the reality of the icon you put on that top shelf, like, whoa. <laughs> So I would urge people is like, use a traditional icon. So you've got your two-step two, uh, two altar, um, silk altar cloth, put a, a traditional icon of a deity on the top shelf, a traditional yantra or a statue, right? And then if you're gonna put offerings, I like doing a five element offering. And it's very traditional. I think almost anybody listening to this is familiar with the basic five elements, something representing the earth element, something representing the water element, something representing the fire element, something representing the wind element, and something representing the space element. Mm. So again, those five things vary from lineage to lineage. What uh, objects they use to represent those elements. The key thing that I want people hearing this to remember is it represents the five elements. Some lineages focus on the five senses, which relate to the five elements. Um, some lineages will use, uh, for example, earth element is associated with the sense of smell. I don't want to go into the esoteric reasons why that is, mm -hmm. right? But they'll put something that smells good to represent the earth element. Whereas in other lineages, they'll put something solid and heavy, like a piece of fruit, right? As a symbol of the solidity and the stability of the earth element. They'll put a physical object there, right? So the actual offerings vary and it gets really complicated. But what I normally put on and what I recommend for a basic five element altar is a piece of food representing the earth element because it's solid, water representing the water element because it's liquid and it flows, a candle or a, a ghee lamp, right? To represent the fire element and again, some traditions get really abstract and they say it's all symbolic and it's about the senses. They'll put a little battery operated candle, you know, a little light. And um, at least in Hindu Dharma, we actually want to have things that are what they represent. Like if you want something that's nutritious, you put something that's nutritious. 
not something that represents nutrition. And you'd only put things on your altar that are compatible with our human experience. Like you should be able to lick or eat anything on your altar. Mm. Plastic objects, uh, paraffin candles are problematic. Uh, Synthetic dyes, it's even like plastic statues are even problematic. Right, Mm. we want things that, that can return to nature. They come from nature, return to nature. Things that are compatible with our human experience because we want a human experience of enlightenment. So a piece of fruit for the uh, earth element because it's solid, um, a little cup of water for the water element, a candle flame um, to represent uh, the fire element, preferably beeswax or a butter lamp, right? Because we could eat that, it's compatible rather than paraffin, right? And then, incense representing the wind element because it moves through the air so gracefully but you can also dance in front of your altar as your wind element offering you can Mm. offer actual movement mudras right um so fruit water flame incense and then for the space element they say a flower because a flower occupies space so beautifully Mm. now the senses that correspond with those five elements are a more subtle way of offering. So the sense of smell, you might offer then perfume or an essential oil for the earth element. For the water element, it's a sense of taste. So that could be anything that tastes marvelous, or it could be water. For the fire element, it's something that looks beautiful. Say Buddhists put a, a mirror on their altar because it reflects everything without being changed by it. So something that looks beautiful right? A work of art or a beautiful piece of jewelry or a mirror. And then for the wind element, they say the wind element is associated with the sense of touch. So they'll put a little bit of silk. That's why when you go and meet all these green pochets, they put these little silk things around your neck and all that. That's supposed to be an offering to the wind element. Wind elements associated with the mind. It's supposed to soothe the mind. So wearing a silk shirt, I mean, doesn't that sound wonderful? Like sleeping in a bed made of satin sheets? You feel mm. relaxed just thinking about it. Doesn't that sound awesome? It so it's something that pleases the sense of touch. And then for the final one, space element, that's associated with sound. And so that's when you chant music or you chant your mantras. And what you see in traditional lineages is they cover all their bases. They will have offerings to please all of the physical, that represent all the physical objects and that please all of the senses. So that you're getting, again, you can think of the altar as a focal point for your attention. They're, they're trying to get all five senses there. And they even say that in like sports strategy, like sports training. And they talk about that even like studying and tests, ways of learning quickly. The more senses you can get on board, the more senses you can direct towards your spiritual practice, the more focused your awareness will be. And as one of my gurus said, the basis of all ritual magic is focused attention. So the more hypnotic and captivating you can make your altar, the more beautiful you can make your altar, the more of your senses you can direct towards the altar, the more intensity of awareness and the more um, powerful the results will be. Mm. Beautiful. Two levels, silk, um, statue, and five offerings representing the five elements. That's what I suggest. Incredible. So I want to circle back for the, uh, you know, for that last bit of our conversation today, which has been incredible. And you've given us so many um, wonderful insights about all of the the topics related to sacred art. And I'm really grateful. Um, But I want to circle back to, you know, the hot topic of misrepresentation and misappropriation. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit about it in terms of the archetypes, but I'd love for you to hear a little bit more about what you think are the main sort of misrepresentations, misappropriations that you're seeing. And if you want to kind of go into a story of, or experience that you've had. Um, um, yeah, so that topic of misrepresentation, misappropriation. Well, first off, um, this is a really hot button topic and it gets people upset. Yeah. Um, we could have spent the whole hour just talking on this one particular subject, right? So, um, what I would really love to do since we've been talking about sacred art and practice and altars is I would like to um, help your listeners focus on the functional component of this rather than the emotional, cultural, or political components of this question. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of components. We can even talk about like 
uh, sat karmas, like our biases that we are cultural biases that make us blind to these issues. Yeah. And so I, I would like to try and take a slightly different orientation, which is one that's functional. Like, why does this matter to me as a practitioner? Why does it matter to me to avoid misappropriation? Because it's going to negatively impact my spiritual practice. Right. We'll go back to the same thing where we talked about how do you choose a deity? How do you know which deity is enlightened? I say, go back to lineages and practices and systems that have a proven track record of success. Do what they do until you understand well enough to do it yourself, right? Just follow the program. Misrepresentation almost always happens when we take something, especially something that doesn't belong to us, something we're not born into, something that wasn't given to us freely by by somebody that it belongs to or somebody that belongs to it, right? We take something without asking and we take it out of context and utilize it in a untraditional way. Almost always that's the problem. Like uh, for example, like I don't know of any lineage, I don't know of any really highly realized teacher that has any issue with anybody doing anything they want in the privacy of their own home. The issue almost always becomes a problem when people start wanting to teach it, represent it, um, uh, make an art project about it by putting Fred Flintstone's head on a deity's body or putting Fred Flintstone into uh, the image of a deity's temple, right? And they wanna do this fancy postmodern mix and match thing. And then people get upset and they say, and then we get all lost in these little arguments about what's offensive, what's not, what's appropriate, what's cultural, what's integrity, what's traditional. I really want to go back to what works. What works for you and what works for you as a citizen in a complex world. So do whatever you want to do in the privacy of your own home. I heartily recommend sticking with a traditional program and doing what people have done that has worked before. It's like if you're going to get in heart surgery, do you really want to be awake during the surgery and start telling the doctor what they should be doing? <laughs> like, really? Like, that doesn't even make sense. You, you, you want to do the same surgery that lots of other people have done that has worked many times before. We can yeah. think of yogic practice as open karma surgery, open soul surgery. You're, you're going around and you're mucking with your energy body and the effects are going to be profound over multiple lifetimes. So I would really want to use the procedures that highly educated people have devised and have utilized and have used successfully for a long time. Mm -hmm. So cultural misappropriation is almost always when we take something without permission out of context and modify it to suit our specific biases, preferences, aversions, or attractions. And it becomes compounded when we go public with that, especially when we try to represent it or teach it. Okay. Um, now, I personally believe that in an abstract, perfect world, appropriation is something we all do, and it's intrinsic to the yogic tradition itself. Mm -hmm. um, what we now call mainstream Hinduism includes, despite what some people would say, Vedic teachings, but it also includes tantric teachings. And some people would say that the two are incompatible, and yet we see it all the time. Anybody who's worshiping a statue is using tantric technology, even if they're calling themselves Vedic, because the Vedic tradition worshiped fire. They didn't use statues. So using yantras and statues in these physical forms, physical objects, right? This is, this is actually the influence of ancient tantric ritual on the Vedic tradition. It's a hybrid. Modern postural yoga is a hybrid, right? Um, most meditative traditions are hybrids of many techniques. I don't deny that. And I do think that appropriation is common. The problem is we see people who have um, only a superficial understanding, taking things out of context and modifying them without a full comprehension of the ramifications of their actions. It's a bit like somebody saying, I've come up with a new heart surgery. I think it works great. They didn't go to doctor college. They don't have a PhD. They never interned you know, in a hospital, they never served a doctor as an assistant, and they just read a couple books about surgery, and they're like, you know what, 
how come nobody has ever uh, put avocados inside somebody's chest? Avocados are nutritious. They belong inside of you. I think avocados are a great idea. And that's where you get beer yoga and goat yoga, right? Heavy metal yoga. People, in some cases, actually really well-meaning people trying to modify these practices for the best of intentions, but having a really um, incomplete understanding of the larger implications of what they're doing. Um, you, a goat does not belong in your asana class any more than an avocado belongs in your chest. It's just, it's lunacy, it's entertainment. And yet people are doing it for laudable reasons and they've got a logic to it. I mean, avocados are good, you put them in you, right? Mm -hmm. Goats make people happy and yoga makes people happy. They go together. You know, it's like this very childlike um, mucking around with actually a very sophisticated system. And so I would say that the simplest way to boil this down is like follow the program, number one. Number two, when we start talking about the cultural implications, have a relationship with the culture of origin, like care. Almost always where I see problems coming up is where people say, I don't care. I'm going to do this for me. I'm doing this my way. I think I know what's best. I don't care what people think, right? There's this lack of caring, a lack of relationship. So if you're going to do a, a culturally specific practice, whether that's Native American shamanism or Northern tradition, European shamanism or um, Taoist Chinese practice, I'd really recommend making a relationship with the community from which those practices arose, having a reciprocal relationship, just like you would with a person. And if you have a loving relationship with people and the culture of origin, you're less likely to do stupid stuff that offends people. Yeah. So before we get bogged down in like specific do's and don'ts and worse and, and betters, I just really want to make it simple. Follow the program and have a loving relationship. And I guarantee you may make mistakes, but it'll all work out for the best in the end. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful answer. All right, so we are coming to the end of our time together, but I'm curious if you have anything based on the topics that we've been discussing, if you have any kind of final comments or things that you'd like to you know, touch on a bit more. So I would really like to end with something that's just been weighing on my mind recently, which is, yeah. see, uh, you know, especially in the tantric traditions, you see a lot of teachings about like, um, pay no attention to, to the politics, pay no attention to the world, focus on yourself, don't think about the future, the past, live for the moment. And it's like a recipe for, for hedonistic narcissism. Totally. And, and I just want to remind people that a lot of these quotes, people are quoting famous gurus and taking these quotes out of context. Remember, I told you that's where the problem is, taking things out of context. Yeah. They're taking specific instructions for specific people and then putting it on social media as a soundbite as if it applies to everyone all the time. So yes, if I have been shot and I'm bleeding out on the street, I'm not gonna focus on anyone else. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna stop that bleeding right now. I'm gonna focus on me. I'm gonna handle that because I'm in an emergency situation. And for many people, they really do need to just focus on themselves and nobody else, not on the past, not on the future. And they just really need to staunch the wound that is causing them anxiety and fear and ignorance, right? They need to spiritually staunch the wound by not caring about other people. But once you've, once you've passed yourself up, then it's time to help other people. <laughs> and I mean, anybody who claims that social justice, that awareness of the world around us has no place in yogic practice has never read the Bhagavad Gita. Right. I mean, that's the whole dialogue that Arjuna has with Krishna. What does Krishna say over and over again? Do your duty, do your duty, do your duty. So I want to just urge your listeners, it's like, yeah, if you're in an emergency situation, focus on your personal healing. But once you've handled the basics, it's time to be in relationship again. And that's the second part of what I wanted to say about that cultural misappropriation thing. It's like follow the program and then have a loving relationship. Mm -hmm. So we need to come back into the world at a certain point, unless it really is your karma and dharma in this lifetime to live in a cave. And like, let's be real with each other. If you're not living in a cave, like, like go out and be compassionate and serve people. Like that's, that's part of the system. Narcissistic hedonism has no place in true dharmic practice. 
because if you're only focusing on yourself, you are aggrandizing your personal identity rather than seeing yourself as all beings. And compassion is inevitable. It's inevitable. The word compassion literally means like having the same feelings. When you, when you have compassion, it's inevitable when you understand that the universe is really your true identity and every single person in it is you looking back at you. And, and love is the basis of all of that. How can you remain narcissistic and self-serving when you've had that experience? Mm. Mm. Wow, Eka. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. So uh, before we say goodbye, would you like to share a little bit about what's coming up for you? Do you have any workshops or uh, do you want to point people in the direction of any programming that, uh, that you're participating in? Well, Thank you so much for asking that. Um, I want to say thank you for the work that you're doing with Embodied Philosophy. Um, there are a lot of resources that are coming out there for people, a lot of educational platforms. Um, and I would really encourage people to make daily scriptural practice, daily study of scripture as a part of their daily practice. Like go back to the sources. Yeah. Um, I work with a website called Living Sanskrit. And so we talk a lot about source materials and source culture. Um, that's a great place for people to find me. I also work with a company called uh, Mystic Art Retreats. And if people want to join me in India, I've got lots of retreats coming up. They can go to Mystic Art Retreats. Uh, they just look that up online. It comes right up. Um, I've got a retreat coming up in November um, doing with textile arts and weaving. And then another one in March focusing on sacred geometry with one of, I'm being honored to teach with one of my own teachers. Um, so people are welcome to join me in India. Um, they can also check out my books, the uh, Bhakti Coloring Book and the Shakti Coloring Book. They're both available online and in stores. And there's tons more coming up, including a book on altars eventually. I'm in negotiations actually with a couple of publishers for that one as well. Excellent. Well, I look forward to reading it when it does come out. So thank you so much, Eka. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. We covered so much. I really appreciate your questions. Thank you. <laughs>